Please always consult with your physicians prior to making any changes to your treatment plan. Music is courtesy of Ryan Hamner. Welcome to Living with Scanxiety, the cancer podcast, a podcast geared to help you navigate the pediatric cancer world. As a mother of a child who battled a soft tissue sarcoma for over a year, your host, Rosaria Kozar, understands and will help guide you through your journey. She brings the knowledge of experts, families, survivors, and other organizations tied to the pediatric cancer world to your doorstep. Her mission is to inform, support, and promote hope for you and your family. This is where hope lives. This is where hope thrives. Together as one we are. I think people don't know how much... Uh, their orthopedic oncologist or any specialty. It's not not like if you're a urologic oncologist, you feel any less this way. But I think we all ride the bumps uh, with our with our patients. And and there's a, you know I think one of the things I liked about it, and one of the things I also find the most difficult about it is you know uh, you get to know patients really well for a long period of time. Unlike other surgical specialties, you get to know their families, and there's a real emotional investment in. And how well they do. And Hi, this is Rosaria, and I am here today with Dr. Alex Christ, and he is a pediatric orthopedic oncologist. So we're going to uncover some of the things that he does and he's responsible for. So I want to raise some of the questions that you might have uh, in terms of what a orthopedic oncologist is responsible for. And I hope that we can do that here for you today. So he is a assistant professor of clinical orthopedic surgery at the Keck School of Medicine of USC in California and Children's Hospital of Los Angeles, who specializes in the treatment of both benign and malignant tumors and related conditions of the musculoskeletal system. He has a special interest in limb salvage and reconstructive techniques following treatment of bone tumors. He is also passionate about scientific research that can improve the lives of patients with musculoskeletal tumors and he has also published a wide variety of related subjects in peer-reviewed journals. So specifically, he's interested in sarcoma genetics, drug delivery, and advanced reconstructive techniques after tumor removal. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Can you give me a little bit of a background on how you got to the point from, I know you studied at Yale University located in New Haven, Connecticut in the United States, but how did you get from there to where you are now? Sure. So um, uh, I, uh, when I went to Yale, I was on the baseball team. So I was an athlete and, and I knew I wanted to go into medicine. So orthopedics was kind of the uh, natural choice. Um, but I was also really interested in biochemistry, cancer genetics, and things of that nature. Uh, and so for a while, I didn't quite understand how I was going to uh, satisfy those two interests until when I was a senior in college, I actually met my future mentor at an alumni dinner. And he's uh, the chief of orthopedic oncology at Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York. And uh, we talked that night and he explained that you, in fact, can treat cancer and be an orthopedic surgeon. 
Uh, and from there, I, I was hooked and interested. I then went to uh, UC Irvine for medical school and studied in the lab of one of his former trainees as well. And then um, after that, I got into orthopedic residency at Hospital for Special Surgery in New York City. Uh, and so I did my residency there, uh, did one fellowship in joint replacement, which uh, applies a lot to what I do for oncology, and then did a second fellowship at Memorial Sloan Kettering in orthopedic oncology. And so it was, it was uh, I thought it was very fortuitous that early to understand that I could uh, do both of those things together as one career. And, and um, I'm very thankful that meeting happened. That's fantastic. And I noticed you mentioned the hospital for special surgery in New York city. Isn't that one of the top ranked orthopedic programs, if I'm right? So uh, this year um, I, I'm not working there anymore, obviously, but this year they were for the 11th year in a row ranked the number one orthopedic program in I, uh, I mean, it was such a wonderful place to train. Um, great friends, great mentors. I, I mean, I, I would do it again if I could. It, it was really a special experience. Oh, that's so great that you had a really good experience there. I'm wondering now, we're going to jump to some of the questions. When do you become part of a patient's treatment team? So usually it's sometime around the beginning of care. Um, uh my specialty is interesting in that, you know, uh, most of my patients get referred to me from other physicians rather than kind of finding me, uh, you know, to solve a problem that they have. Uh, and so specifically, you know, in terms of pediatric cancer and children's hospital, um, uh, a child will get referred in from an outside institution and, and there, you know, where we are can be from you know, three hours north in California can be from Nevada, Arizona, all over the place. So they'll get referred in for their pediatrician for, uh, you know, a con concern of cancer or actually a diagnosed cancer. And if it involves the musculoskeletal system, so uh, any of the extremities uh, or the pelvis, uh, especially the pelvic bones or musculature, then they'll usually get me involved. Okay. So being an orthopedic doesn't just mean bones. No, and so uh, we will treat both uh, cancers and benign tumors of bone, but also the soft tissues of the extremities and the pelvis. Some orthopedic surgeons, will, uh, orthopedic oncologists will do uh, spine as well. Mm -hmm. uh, neurosurgeons will do that too. And I think that's just more dependent upon people's interests and, and where they you know, want to focus their practice. Oh, okay. And can you tell me three of the more common types of cancers that you see? Sure. And so uh, in terms of pediatrics, the, the big two bone cancers are osteosarcoma and Ewing sarcoma, although there will be kind of a, a variety of a little bit more rare ones. Uh, and then in adults, uh, there's a wide variety of soft tissue sarcomas. So sarcomas, you know, uh, arising from muscle, tendon, ligaments, nerves, things like that. Uh, but also a lot of actually, unfortunately, uh, metastatic disease. So meaning uh, usually carcinomas like breast cancer or prostate cancer that then has traveled to the skeleton. When you have a patient come in with Ewing's or with osteo, what do you do? Do you have, is amputation your go-to and when do you decide to do that versus limb salvation? And then, so yeah. when do you decide and make these decisions? Yeah. And so, you know, I think in taking a step back, um, anytime a kid comes in with any of these 
cancers. I mean, the first step is diagnosis. So they need a biopsy uh, to prove exactly what they have uh, for sure. Uh, once that happens, especially in pediatrics, almost all of the time, not always, but the majority of the time, uh, they get neoadjuvant chemotherapy, meaning chemotherapy before any local treatment of the tumor. Um, uh, they will, the oncologist will then plan for a, a break period in their chemotherapy, usually for local treatment. And for osteosarcoma, local treatment is exclusively wide resection meaning removing the entire tumor in one piece with a normal layer of tissue surrounding it so you can be sure that you've removed every single cell. Uh, in Ewing sarcoma, it's a little bit different. Um, usually, I think the best cure rates still occur when you're able to perform a wide resection, but you can cure people with radiation alone along with chemotherapy, uh, and people will sometimes do both, especially if they know that the surgical margin may be close in that area. So it's really a multidisciplinary treatment group. Um, everybody has to work together and, and be in close communication to make it all happen appropriately. Uh, and so um, from my perspective then is really uh, local treatment. So how do we deal with this tumor? Um, the majority of the time, thankfully, we are able to uh, perform limb salvage. So we're able to do some sort of surgery that still allows the patient to keep a functional extremity. Um, this was not the case 40 or 50 years ago. 40 or 50 years ago, it was almost exclusively amputation. And without chemotherapy, uh, these diseases were still uh, almost universally fatal. I think osteosarcoma, uh, with amputation alone, it's like an 18 or 19% survival rate. So chemotherapy is mandatory. Um, now, thankfully, due to advances in both surgical technique and, and reconstructive options, including all sorts of different implant systems that we can use to reconstruct large parts of the limb, the majority of patients are able to get limb salvage surgery. Um, unfortunately, that's still not all the time. And sometimes if, you know, if we feel that the uh, vessels, the artery and arteries and veins or the nerves going down the limb are so involved or compromised, uh, that the limb would not be functional after wide resection, then we'll recommend amputation. Um, finally, rotation plasty, the, uh, the procedure where you essentially turn the foot 180 degrees and turn the ankle into a knee, uh, that's usually reserved for kids who are still growing. Um, and so that their growth, as their growth plates grow, you get you know, a femur that has a, essentially a matching length to the other femur, and then you use a prosthetic device uh, and, and, uh, you can get some amazing functional results with that. Obviously, you know, it takes a certain personality for both, uh, the child and the family to be able to have their foot on backwards and halfway up their leg. Um, but, but it can really, you know, allow people to live very full lives. And there are, there are videos of kids playing soccer and basketball with their rotation plasty. So, uh, it, it is an option, but thankfully most of the time we're able to perform themselves. And you brought up growth plates. So growth plates, if you explain what those are, that'd be great. And then tell me what happens to them. So if you have a three-year-old child that's getting radiation to those growth plates, what happens to them? Um, and how can that affect them 10 years down the line? Sure. So growth plates, um, the, the term we use for it is the physis. Um, but you know, everybody commonly calls it a growth plate. And these are the, these are the centers in the bone, uh, that grow. Um, and so 
in a long bone like a femur, uh, you'll have one at the, you know, one at one end, one at the other end, and these will continue to grow from birth until, uh, you know, past puberty into maturity. And these provide, you know, the centers of elongation of the bone in either direction. Um, uh, if a tumor involves the growth plate or you have to radiate a tumor and the growth plate is within the radiation field, uh, you can get growth plate arrest, meaning it, it, it essentially scars into itself and doesn't continue to grow further. Um, this can obviously cause a big problem, both functionally and cosmetically. And the younger the child is, the worse the problem can be in terms of overall discrepancy compared to the other limb. Um, Again, now uh, there are a number of techniques to deal with that. Unfortunately, once a growth plate arrests and stops growing, there's really no option to get that growth plate to start up again. Uh, you can do other things, though, depending upon the age, like stopping the, the uh, comparable growth plate on the other limb so that the, the, the patient will be shorter, but at least have equal limb lengths. Or now there's a whole field of orthopedic surgery uh, called limb lengthening or reconstruction where they can use all sorts of techniques, both internal lengthening nails, external fixators, all sorts of things that where you can slowly over time get that length back later. And so a lot of those techniques are employed after cancer treatment is over to try to uh, uh, match the affected leg or arm to the other side. And around the bones, there's lymph nodes as well. So do you have to take all of that in the lymphatic system into consideration as well? Uh, it depends upon the type of tumor. Um, so uh, unlike carcinomas, uh, sarcomas in general travel to, to lymph nodes or through the lymph system very rarely. There's a small subset of sarcomas, all soft tissue sarcomas that actually do travel to lymph nodes. Uh, and for those, you have to be a little bit more careful, but those are uh, a pretty rare subset. Oh, okay. When we talk about resection and the surgical incision, I'm not even sure I know what those mean. So can you break those down and which ones require the complete surgical incision versus the wide resection? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And so um, there's kind of a, a group of terms that we use and it's uh, and I think understanding them really helps people understand, you know, what needs to be done and why. Um, and so th there are four types of uh, uh, resections or ways to remove a tumor. One is intralesional, meaning that you're actually inside the tumor scooping it out. And that's done for benign tumors. Uh, another one is marginal, meaning that you take it out right at the margin. Maybe you leave a couple cells behind. And again, that's really a, a, an option for benign diseases. Uh, the next one is what we commonly do for cancer, which is called a wide resection. And what that means is that you take out the whole tumor in one piece, leaving a cuff of normal tissue all the way around to be absolutely certain that you didn't leave a single cancer cell behind. And so commonly that's, that's what we need to do for cancer. There's a fourth term that gets kind of mixed in there and, and there's a little confusion as to, uh, and it gets interposed with wider section. It's called radical resection. And radical resection means taking out the entire compartment. And so an example of that would be um, if you had a tumor in the femur, you would take out the entire femur bone. 
And so we know now that for the most part, you don't need to perform radical resections. You just need to do a wide resection. So unless the tumor took up the entire femur, you usually would not take out the entire femur. I know we talked about it a little bit, but in terms of limb salvage versus amputation, is there anything you'd like to add to that? And do you prepare parents for terminology? For example, my son was told, or we were told because he was three, that he now has a stump. And the first time we heard the word, we were absolutely horrified. We had no idea that that's what it was going to be referred to. So how do you handle that? So, you know, there are situations where um, there is a reasonable debate between performing amputation and limb salvage. Um, You know, I think every time we have a malignant tumor of the extremities, I explained to the the parents that uh, uh, amputation is an option. Uh, Most cases do not require amputation, but I think people, it's important to understand that that is part of the spectrum of treating many of these diseases and that with an amputation, sometimes you're able to obtain the safest margins in terms of cancer treatment. Um, again, most of the time I would, I, I do recommend limb salvage in most cases. Um, and you know, a lot of the things unfortunately are specific case to case. And so, you know, I, in terms of generalities, um, uh, below knee amputations are some of the most functional amputations you can have because some of the prostheses are so good. You know, we, you know, we see uh, special Olympics and you watch people sprinting with blowy knee amputations. It's incredible. Um, that being said, still, you know, uh, those, those people have to wake up every morning and they don't have their foot. And there, there's a, there's a psychologic component to that, that, that shouldn't be, uh, you know, dismissed in any way. It's, it's really, you know, it's heavy and it's important. And so people, you know, people need to be prepared for understanding that difference. That being said, for, you know, big tumors around the ankle or lower tibia, uh, a lot of the time people live much higher quality lives with a below knee amputation than trying to reconstruct those areas just because the anatomy is so difficult that what they end up with is usually a short, stiff, painful uh, foot and lower leg as opposed to a very high functioning amputation. Um, if you start to work up the leg a little bit and you talk about osteosarcoma where the most common site is the distal femur, um, that means you would have to perform an above knee amputation. And, and you know, functionally, that is, uh, is, is very difficult. Um, prosthesis fitting and wear is difficult. Uh, energy expenditure while walking is, is much harder than it would be normally or even with an implant in place. And so those situations, as long as the, you know, uh, vital structures going down the leg aren't, aren't in danger or aren't being uh, enveloped by the tumor, most people will do better with a prosthesis, a, you know, a, a, an internal, essentially extra large knee replacement rather than having an amputation. And unfortunately, um, like we talked about before, the cancer dictates everything that happens afterwards, you know, so wherever the cancer is, the, the anatomy there and what it involves essentially dictates what we have to do. And we don't really have a, a say in that. We just have to treat whatever it is the best we can. Um, I do prepare parents for the word stump. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I, I say it up front. Um, 
and, and I just, you know, I make sure that I'm very clear uh, about the whole process because I think, well, to, you know, to your experience, it, it's, it's completely shocking. There's no, I, you know, I'm a parent as well. And I, there's no way that wouldn't be shocking. Um, I, I think the best way to handle it is to be uh, completely upfront and honest about what's going on so that people can uh, use all of their, uh, you know, emotional uh, ability to, to handle it and, and try to do what's best for their kid. No, it's difficult. And thank you for doing that for people because it was emotionally traumatizing. My, my last question would be uh, in terms of surgery, when I walked my son into the surgical room, which specialists most likely, who do you work with when you're doing these and performing these surgeries? Sure. And so again, kind of the, uh, unfortunately the tumor dictates what we have to do. Mm -hmm. So if, if we have to do, for instance, sometimes we'll even do limb salvage, even when the tumor um, completely encases uh, arteries. Mm-hmm. And so in a surgery like that, we would, uh, we would have the vascular surgeons come in and actually reconstruct the artery mm-hmm. for us once we take the uh, tumor out. Most commonly, you know, uh, we're working with plastic surgeons a lot because many of the times when we take out some of these tumors, um, the, the soft tissue defect, you know, what muscle or skin or fascia is there left to kind of close and cover whatever you have to do, uh, there's not enough left where it is. And so what you have to do is ask the plastic surgeons to come and they will either kind of rotate tissue from the local area um, or the, all the way up to actually detaching tissue from other parts of the body. Uh, and transporting it to that area and hooking it up to local arteries and veins so that essentially, you know, it's called a free flap. And so we, uh, we ask for their help quite often in these cases. Um, in other cases, especially kind of complex cases in the pelvis, these become truly multidisciplinary surgeries. Um, and so tumors of the pelvic bones or sacrum um, can involve uh, an orthopedic surgeon, a colorectal surgeon, a urologist, a vascular surgeon, a plastic surgeon, and it becomes, uh, you know, quite the ordeal in there. And so, again, unfortunately, the, the the cancer dictates kind of what we need to do to solve the problem. Um, and that's actually one of the things I, I really enjoy about being an orthopedic oncologist uh, professionally, is that we do get to interact and work with uh, a lot of really smart people from other specialties. And, and, it, and it, I think we all kind of amaze each other sometimes. I can't tell you how many times in the OR I've seen them. I'm like, oh my goodness, you guys can do that? Like, yeah, we do this all the time. And I'm just like, that is, that's, that's incredible. You know, and so that, that is one thing that does make, it's a good part of the job. That's great. And thank you so much for your time. Before we sign off, is there anything that you would like to add? You know, I, I think obviously, um, a lot of these uh, situations are, are awful. There's no better way to put it. And, and I think one thing that, um, as a, you know, as a parent myself, I think I try to explain, and it's hard to understand that at the time, and I, I get it. Um, I think people don't know how much uh, their orthopedic oncologist or any specialty, it's not 
not like if you're a urologic oncologist, you feel any less this way, but I think we all ride the bumps uh, with our, with our patients. And, and there's, you know, I think one of the things I liked about it and one of the things I also find the most difficult about it is, you know, uh, you get to know patients really well for a long period of time. Unlike other surgical specialties, you get to know their families and there's a real emotional investment in, uh, in how well they do. And so, uh, the highs are really great. The lows are really low. Um, uh, but you know, I think, most families probably feel that way, but there's, you know, I think there's a significant two-way investment, uh, especially when, you know, trying to care for a child with cancer. And so uh, really developing a, a team where, you know, it's, it's the parents, the medical oncologist, the surgical oncologist, whether that's orthopedic or otherwise, and everybody together to fight this disease is really, uh, is really important, but it's also a really special, uh, special situation that we don't, get to see in a lot of other places in medicine or society. Well, your emotional investment does mean a lot, but so thank you so much. And thank you for joining us. And I really appreciate your time. Thank you for having me on and and thank you for doing this and and obviously providing other, other parents and patients a resource to kind of help understand better what's going on. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. That really does mean a lot. Thank you for tuning in to Living with Scanxiety. Please subscribe to hear more informative discussions like today's. Music is courtesy of Ryan Hamner.